Let's open up God's word this evening again to the New Testament book of John chapter 20. If you would please, John chapter 20. And we return to the portion of scripture that we began to look at this morning. John chapter 20, we'll begin reading in verse number 19 and read down through the rest of the chapter. And a beautiful words are found here. John chapter 20, beginning in verse number 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, then came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, ye might have life through his name. And may God bless the reading and hearing of his words. Let's just pray briefly. And ask God to help us as we look at this portion. Father, this is thy word, not ours. And so we pray unto thee tonight and ask of thee, Lord, open thou the eyes of our understanding, that we may receive thy word this evening, that it may do more than rest on the outward portion of our ears. We, we, we instead pray that thy word may make an entrance into our hearts, that we may be forever changed. I pray for those who are yet unbelieving, for those who are sitting in our midst tonight and they still do not quite believe. We pray that this evening 
would be the glad hour of salvation for them. We pray for those of us who are thy children. May we serve thee with joy and gladness. May we go forth from this place with a certain zeal and expectation. Oh, Father, speaking to us tonight, we pray for thy servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remind you, as we look this morning, Jesus Christ had just appeared to 10 of the disciples. Judas was gone. He had taken his life. And Thomas was away. He wanted to be alone. But 10 were gathered there. And the moment that Christ had entered into that room in verse number 19, you can just imagine that their sorrow had been turned to joy. And doubt had given way to great faith. And his message was, peace be unto you. Now, some have imagined that just to be a, a greeting of that day and time. I think that's a load of nonsense. Jesus never said words just for the sake of saying words. Everything he said had a deep meaning and purpose and intention. So when he said, peace be unto you, what he meant clearly and intentionally was that their heart would be set at peace. They were troubled. They were troubled at their failure. They were troubled at their unbelief. They were troubled at the disappearance, the death of their Lord, and now the disappearance of his body. They were troubled, and the message he brought was peace. He showed them his hands, showed them his side. He gave proofs that his resurrection was bodily, not just a spiritual resurrection, as some people would have you think today, but a physical bodily resurrection. In Luke's account, he says, look, a spirit doesn't have a body. Give me something to eat proving that he was indeed risen physically. And the Bible says in verse 20, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then they were glad. And then Jesus says to them again, as we look this morning, peace be unto you. As my father hath sent me, even so send I you. And then he does something in our text that we have never seen before. In fact, Nowhere else in the New Testament is this even found, what he does in that room. It's never found before, and it's never found after. And therefore, we conclude it's not something that we should try to imitate, as many people try today, because it never was repeated again, even amongst the apostles in the book of Acts. The Bible says he breathed on them. I do not pretend tonight to know exactly what was going on there. There are some folks who think that uh, apparently they think that they're like Jesus Christ and they breathe on people all the time and expect something to happen. I do not think that's why this was recorded. This was the first and last time we see such an occasion in Scripture. But it's not the first time we hear of the breath of God. Interestingly, In the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, we first read of God breathing upon man. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, in verse number 7, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. That, by the way, that squashes the evolutionary theory because man wasn't formed over billions of years. No, God formed him out of the dust of the ground intentionally. And then he breathed. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. God, the giver of life, breathed life into Adam. 
And not just man, we find it in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 22. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. So we understand that God had breathed into all living creatures this breath of life. Every living creature has been given this breath of life from God. Job speaks about this in Job chapter 33, verse number 4. He testifies that the Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. Would you look this way for a moment? If you're alive tonight, and you are if you're here, if you're alive tonight, God himself has breathed into you the breath of life. So hold on a moment. My father and mother gave me life. But there'd be no light if God, life if God did not breathe into your very body the breath of life. Life-giving force. The psalmist agrees in Psalm chapter 33 in verse number 6. He writes and says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. What power there is in the breath of God. We sometimes sing, breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew. There is something marvelous and powerful about the breath of almighty God. Something life-giving about it. But his breath also has the power, not just to make life, but has the power to bring to life again or to revive. I think maybe some of us tonight are in need of a bit of reviving. God, God's breath has a unique power that if one be as, as, as though one were dead, God could breathe upon that person and new life could come into them. We find this in the Old Testament when the prophet Elijah spread out over a dead one and life was brought in. We read this over and over in scripture that God has a power to bring to life again that which had died. We find it especially explained, I think, in Ezekiel chapter 37, that wonderful chapter when the prophet of God was made to stand over a valley of dry bones. And the scriptures say that the hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord. There's always a connection with the breath of God and the spirit of God. And he set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and though they were very dry, there was a valley full of death and really dead. The bones were dry. Not a, not a sinew left, not an ounce of life left, not a hair, not a shred of flesh, dry bones. And he said unto me, son of man, can these bones live? Would you look this way? Humanly speaking, no. No. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord, thou knowest. Again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Can I just say something tonight? I can preach all night long, but unless the spirit of God moves, there'll be no life given. I can prophesy like Ezekiel. I can preach over dead men, dead men who are dead in trespasses and sins. But unless the spirit of God move, as we see here, Again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath 
to enter into you and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put in you and ye shall and put breath in you and ye shall live and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and behold, a shaking. And the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Think about the incredible power of God's breath. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with Jesus in the in this room with these with these disciples, these ten disciples? And Jesus breathing on them. Now, why was he even breathing? They were already alive. They were standing there. They're already believing, right? Why was he breathing on these men here? Now, I'd be foolish. I would be foolish if I pretended to understand all that was taking place here. But I do believe there's much that is symbolic, much that is to be seen and followed through the rest of Scripture, especially since this is the only time in the New Testament that we find such an event and an occasion I would be foolish as to say, I know exactly what's happening, but I do have an inclination. We compare scripture with scripture, hearing that God, the God of the Old Testament, and it's the same God of the Old Testament, is the same, is the same God of the New, that it is in his power, in his breath that the power of life is held. We read in one Corinthians, pardon me, one Corinthians 15, that Paul writes and he says something interesting in verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. The first Adam, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he was made alive. But the second Adam wasn't just made alive, but he was made a life giver. And so... We compare, we begin to understand through Scripture that what Christ was doing was demonstrating the whole purpose that he came to this world to die was so that he might prove that he was victorious over that one thing that was a threat to every human being, death. And although death was destined for all of us, he is the life giver. We find that the last Adam was made a quickening spirit, literally a life-giving spirit, a life-giving breath. That's who Jesus is. That's who Christ is, the risen Savior, the one who got up from the grave, the one who conquered death, now had the power to give life and to stop death. That's who we serve. That's why we say that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? Death and hell. That's why we say that uh, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life because Jesus is the life giver. 
Naturally, our life is, is, is oozing out of us, seeping out of us. Day after day, we're losing life. And if you don't believe me now, just, just hang on a little bit longer. You ask some of our older friends here, they'll help you understand that life is leaving them. They're not nearly as strong as they used to be. Their eyes aren't as strong as they once were. They're hearing. They got to have little apparatuses sometimes stuck in their ears just to hear us. And they'll tell you that life is leaving them. It's going. The signs and evidences of life are naturally leaving because if I, if I, I remind you that the wages of sin is what? Death. That's the way that all of us are headed. But Christ Jesus, the second Adam, was made a quickening spirit. He's the only one. There is no life-giving potion. There is no, uh, there is no river of, of living water that you can drink besides Jesus himself. There is no special uh, spa that you can go and soak in and have a little bit of extra life added to you. No, no, no. Jesus alone is the life giver. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I alluded to some of the verses a moment ago, but in the, in the last few verses of the chapter, I love what, what Paul says. He says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Because do you know before Christ rose from the grave, look here for a moment, before Jesus got up from the grave, death seemed to be victorious. He was like, death was like an unbeaten champion. Death had the world title. Death stood in the ring and nobody could ever defeat death. Every great warlord and conqueror, when they stepped in the ring with death, they lost. But when Jesus stepped in the ring, death was conquered. And that's the marvelous truth of the resurrection. That when Christ got up, when he rose from the grave victorious, all of heaven and all of hell knew that it was game over. Paul writes, you can, you can almost hear the excitement in his voice and and you can almost imagine his pen leaping off of the page as he writes, O oh, death, where is thy sting? In a mocking voice. O oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. We have the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now he gives life. Not physical life spiritual life. And that's what we find in this chapter of John chapter 20. This is exactly in the context of what Jesus is explaining to the disciples, the apostles, what we clearly are seeing when Jesus breathes on these disciples as he is empowering them, equipping them for a calling, a new calling, which is not one of just miracles and healing, but is the calling of preaching the life-giving message of the gospel. This was their calling. You would begin to see that the days when Christ performed miracles and even the apostles would perform some. But you begin to see that that would give way largely to the clear preaching of the gospel. Because what good is it if you heal everybody in the world physically, but yet they die and go to hell? And so this is the emphasis, not on the physical life, but on spiritual life. And we find this. This wasn't the first time, by the way. In John chapter 5, in the same book, in John 5 verse 21, Jesus from his own lips tries to explain, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. He was trying to explain to people that he came to give life. John chapter 6 and verse 33 says it again, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven 
and giveth life unto the world. Life. He came to give life. Now, don't be confused into thinking that life is, is, uh, is about turning back the pages of time. And, and uh, now we like to imagine that that would be the case, but that's not what's happening now. Now, there is a sense when you be renewed in your spirit. They that wait upon the, uh, the Lord shall, shall renew their strength. They shall rise up, uh, the Bible says, with wings like eagles and soar. It's amazing. Uh, it's a, a, tr- a tremendous promise. But the promise of, of life is not that of physical life, but of spiritual. And that's why we find in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul gives us in the first couple of verses, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Did you catch that? Verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Because Jesus Christ was raised to give that spirit of life. In verse 9, Paul says, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Can I just say to you tonight, you can know every word of this Bible, but if you do not have the Spirit of God living inside of you, you are not His. What you need is the new birth. You need new life. You don't just need old life with new information. You don't just need to have your old life and add to it Jesus. You need a new life. You need the Spirit of God. You need Christ by the Spirit of God to breathe into you life. That's what you need. And if you don't have it, you are dead in your sins. It's interesting when you think about the Old Testament, God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of physical life. Now Christ breathed by his spirit, breathes into man's spirit the breath of spiritual life. That's what we need. That's exactly, precisely what Jesus was saying in John chapter 3. You know the story of Nicodemus? Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the man was confused. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter in the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, can I just ask you tonight, would you look here? Have you been born of the Spirit of God? Have you been born again? That which is born of flesh is flesh. Just a moment ago, two of my children, born of flesh, were here. In the same way that my children were born of flesh, you need to be born of God, born from above. You need that life. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. That's what is needed to be born of the Spirit of God. Now, it's interesting, after, I want you to hear this, after, in John chapter 20, after he breathes on, the Bible says in, in verse number 20, verse number 22, pardon me, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. 
Now, I, I, I don't believe that this is the moment that when they were being born again, when they were saved, they already knew the Lord. They were walking with Him. They still had a long way to go. But I do think there's some wonderful connection here. That everything that God offers must be received. Everything. From salvation itself. It's no good you coming into a, into a meeting like this and hoping that through osmosis you're going to be saved. It's no good you being raised in a Christian church and thinking that because of your father and mother are Christians, you'll be a Christian. It's no good you wearing a name tag that says, I'm a Christian. No, you must receive the gift of salvation or you don't have it. You say, is that in the Bible? Of course it is. John chapter 1, verse number 21. As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Have you received Christ Jesus? Well, that's just one verse. You say, let me give you a couple more. Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 40. Jesus himself speaking of himself. Matthew 10, verse number 40 said this. He that receiveth you receiveth me and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Have you received him? In receiving Christ, you receive the gift of God, which is salvation. And again, in Colossians chapter two, the apostle Paul writes to another group of believers and he says the very same thing in verse 6, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Have you received him? God has a multitude of precious gifts to be given. Christ Jesus speaks about receiving the spirit of the living God. And I believe that when a man calls upon the name of Christ, when he calls upon the name of the Lord, he is born again, he is saved. And by faith we receive God's spirit. But do you know that there are many Christians who live their life like the Spirit of God isn't there? They live their life not even knowing the Spirit of God. And they're afraid to even mention the name Holy Spirit, lest they be classed as a certain category of Christians. They're afraid to talk about the one without which you, can, you can't live the Christian life. Without the Spirit of the living God, you cannot live this life. There are some people who should be here today who have fallen off the wagon. Because they try to do it themselves. And I'm telling you tonight, if you try to live this life yourself, through your theology and through your knowledge and through your intellectualism, off the wagon you go. You need the Spirit of God. You cannot live, you cannot walk, you cannot minister, you cannot do what you're called to do. And then Christ gives them a calling after he says, receive ye the Holy Ghost. I wonder this evening, do you acknowledge the existence of God's Spirit in your life? If you don't, you're grieving him. I believe that entirely. What we have done is we have allowed some folks who have emphasized, put so much of an emphasis on the Holy Spirit, we've allowed that to, to cause us not to put any emphasis on the Spirit of God. And all we're doing is ruining our own selves. We need him. The Spirit of God was not sent to speak of himself. He was sent to exalt the Savior, to speak of Christ. And therefore, you and I cannot speak of Christ the way we should without his help. We can't. We need him. And as soon as Jesus said, receive ye the Holy Ghost, then he said, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted. An amazing thought that God, the Lord Jesus, imparted unto these disciples a marvelous commission and responsibility, that they were to hold open the door of salvation and bid all who would come to enter in. An amazing opportunity and gift. An amazing gift that even the children of the living God are able to stand today and enter into 
holding open the door and saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. What a privilege. Some have really twisted this and tried to say, well, this means that I can come and get forgiveness of sins from a man of the cloth. That's not at all what this is saying because we don't ever find that through the rest of Scripture. So we know that's not what it was saying. But what it was saying in a similar fashion in Matthew 16 when Jesus said, I give unto you the keys. I give unto Peter, he was saying, I give unto you the keys of eternal life of the kingdom. What he was saying is you now have the responsibility to preach the life-giving message. You have the responsibility to speak of a Savior who's alive, who can give new life. Go for it. Open wide the door and compel men to enter in. This is precisely what was Paul referring to, I believe, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he spoke about being an ambassador for Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll close with some of these remarks. He says in verse 9, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Would you just look here for one moment? Do you know that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ? And I believe that event is sooner than you could ever imagine. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. And he goes on, I love verse 13, for whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. Whether you think we're crazy, that's okay, it's for God. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we have tasted of the love of Jesus, because we have received the gift of God's Spirit, and life has been breathed into us, we are constrained and compelled. Because we judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live, this brings you and I into this. If you've been born again, they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And then he says in verse number 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. I hear people sing, sing that sometimes. I'm a new creation. But I wonder, do they really mean it? Are they really new? Has their mind really been changed? Or have they only added the name of Jesus to their previous life? Have they really become a new person? Has God really breathed into them new life? Or are they just acting sometimes like a Christian while carrying their past life along with them? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new because you have new life. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, 
We pray you in Christ said, be reconciled to God. When Christ breathed upon the disciples that night, here's what he was saying. As the Father sent me, even so send I you. I came to give life, and I send you to give life. I was reading this afternoon. It's amazing. Christianity has a very unique message. It is really and truly the only faith in the world that declares true peace. That's why three times he says, peace be unto you. There are many other religions that say that they're religions of peace, and we all know that they're not. Any religion that is started by forcing people into it by a sword is not a religion of peace. This one is new life through Christ. And we who have received new life are now ambassadors for that one who gave us life. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, the question I believe tonight is first and foremost this question. Have you received that life? Look, I've met many people who have worn the title of Christian their entire lives, but they've never been born again. And you will never, ever enter into the kingdom of God. You'll never see Christ Jesus face to face except on judgment day unless you've been born again. You need that birth. Spiritual birth. And if you have not received that life, then let tonight be the night that you do. We believe by the power of God, we are commissioned by the same spirit to open the door tonight and compel you. This is the way. Walk ye in it. We believe that by the authority of God himself, we are able to say unto you, Jesus is the door. If you will enter in by him, you will be saved. And so tonight, if you've never had that life, my message is the same message that the apostles gave. Repent of your sins and believe in Christ. But tonight, if you have done that, and you have new life in you, then your message is this. It's the same that we find here. Our message is that we would declare unto the rest of this world this message of peace. That we would be ambassadors for Christ. There might be some here like Thomas who are unbelieving. And the words that he gave to Thomas were, be not faithless, but believing. I wonder tonight, are you faithless or believing? Faithless or believing? Maybe you believe, but you're not believing quite enough. And so you might cry like we read earlier in the scriptures, Lord, help my unbelief. I, I believe, but help my unbelief. More faith. Lord, increase my faith that I may, may attempt greater things for thee. May the Lord increase our faith tonight. We have a glorious Savior, a risen Lord, a life-giving Savior, and we have the responsibility and privilege of entering into that ministry, of representing him to a lost and dying world. And these things were written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Do you tonight have life through his name? I hope you do. Let's pray together, then we'll sing our final hymn. Father in heaven, we give thanks that there is life in Christ. 
Tonight, we pray that thy spirit would indeed move through this place according as thou wilt. We ask of thee, Lord, do that work which no man can do, which no preaching can do. The work that thy spirit alone can do. We do trust. We do believe, Father. In faith, we believe that it has pleased thee through the foolishness of preaching to save them who would believe. And tonight, we preach Christ, thy Son, our Savior. As best as we know how, as feebly as we can, we hold open the door and compel men to come to him. Help us tonight, we pray. Help those tonight who are lost. Save them, please. Even this evening, save them, we pray. May they receive Christ Jesus. May they receive that gift of salvation through thy spirit. O Lord, move, we pray, for we ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.